Well, in Chicago, in about 2010, I planned a trip with some friends to meet, uh, at, that my t- at that time, my girlfriend. And this was a trip that required, like all trips like that, uh, planning, uh, money, this, in this case, a lot of money, and, uh, and uh, some wisdom. Um, there's actually a member in this church who, uh, prior to this trip, had encouraged me long ago with, John, good things come to those who wait. Well, when I was in Chicago, uh, I met my girlfriend, and the high point of the whole thing was, um, was going to Buckingham Fountain. Uh, Buckingham Fountain is in a nice place in Chicago, in a safe place. I still think it's safe there, tourist place. And I had planned at that place for a proposal. And uh, so uh, things were going a little rough that day. It was cold and windy. I got us lost, and we ended up eating at Subway because we were starving. Uh, but then we made our way to the park after I got us lost again, and uh, we went there, and in the kindness and goodness of God's grace, when we got to the fountain, there was no one there, and on top of that, uh, the lights went on, and music started playing, and uh, I had nothing to do with that, <laughs> and I, I got down on one knee, and, and my wife, who wishes she could be here this morning, she's at home with Danny, uh, she, she said yes, my now wife. And she even said yes when earlier that day I had left a ring in a bag, duh, uh, with her in a coffee shop and it fell on the floor and she picked it up and she noticed the box and put it back so she had time to get out of Chicago. Uh, but, but she was there. Now, I, I, I said some things out of young love then that by, only God can care for people that way. But that place in Chicago was a meeting place that started a relationship. And the Bible is all about God inviting us, redeemed people, to a meeting place with him. And so as we read our Bibles, God has marked places in history that have meaning and significance. If you're not married today, you may have a place, a farm, a holiday spot, a family location, and and you love it because you identify yourself with those people and it has meaning for you. Well, there was in our Bibles, as we begin at the beginning, a garden where God walked with his people, and in that garden was like a temple. And as we move through history, God has had a place, a meeting place, Canaan, the promised land, then a tabernacle, then a temple, and today, the church where Jesus reigns and we've sung of and encouraged by this morning. Um, I want us to consider that idea here in the prophet Haggai, uh, this idea that God has a meeting place for us. And central to this book in these two chapters is the idea of the temple uh, that they were to rebuild. The problem with the meeting place for us in God is not God and not the beauty of the creation he's made. The problem is always with us and our rebellion and sin. And so sadly through history, we've been cast out and sent away and God has come back to redeem us. And the Old Testament, as we've been in this series, seeing the unfaithfulness of the people in uh, taking the curses of God and not fulfilling their worship to him were sent away again and again. Here God has brought them back to the land, and Haggai comes to them with the word of the Lord. And he comes to them to, first of all, confront them, and second of all, to encourage them. So chapter 1, the word of the Lord confronts us It confronts us. It 
arouses us. He comes to us personally with questions to get our attention and to look at our priorities. In chapter 2, after the people respond, God encourages us now to consider his promises. So we're going to look at chapter 1 and look at uh, considering how we are to look at ourselves and our ways and then move to how we should then consider God's promises, all in light of the fact that God has promised to meet with us and to be with us forever. So uh, beginning in chapter 1 with your Bibles there, you'll notice that the Lord brings Haggai uh, in the second year of Darius the king, verse 1. We know exactly when this word came in 520 BC, and four uh, messages were given to the prophet to give to the people that only lasted from August to December. And in this short ministry, uh, he prophesied at the time of Zechariah, which we'll hear about soon, and he was encouraging the people who had grown complacent and selfish to continue to build the temple. At that time, the meeting place with God and his people. And so the prophet comes in verse 1. And he comes to Zerubbabel and Joshua. He comes to the leaders, the governor and the priest of Israel. The governor, Zerubbabel, was a descendant of King David. And a great precious promise is given to him at the end of the letter that we won't have time for. But the Lord comes with the question, as he often does uh, with us. And you can see that in uh, verse 2. These people say, or he comes with an accusation and then a question. Here's God's accusation to the people. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Okay, so God comes, Haggai comes by the hand of the Lord, and he says, there's something going on here. You say there's no time for me, and there's no time for worship in my temple. The word of the Lord comes to Haggai again, now speaking to the leaders and all of the people, and asks them this question in verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So maybe you're thinking they really don't have time. After all, these are people who have made the trek all the way from Babylon, gone through tremendous risk and hardship. They're trying to rebuild their life. They're getting opposition on every front, and this is hard work. And God calls them to think about their ways in verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? Notice, first of all, that this message is very personal. It's from the hand of the prophet who is speaking for God. I was at a park in Stouffville last week with my son, and uh, some children were throwing stones, maybe about four or five years old. Children, you know what throwing stones are like. And some parents came over and warned the children to stop. And uh, my son started to play with them, and he started to pick up stones, so I thought, I, I need to get involved here now. So I went over and asked a question to these children. And I said to them, why are you throwing stones? And they said, we're not throwing stones, we're playing a game. So I decided to get into this conversation with them. And uh, one of the things I eventually ended up saying, because it wasn't that personal, they don't know me, I, I ended up saying, where's your mother? To which neither one of them were looking at me. And uh, a man gave me a thumbs up, another parent, and I sort of left because Evan came with me. Now, Evan, when he, it was personal for him, right? When he saw me and heard my voice and he looked at me, he dropped the stones. 
Now, he doesn't always do that, right? <laughs> he could have just as easily been throwing. But it was personal because he knew me. This message this morning is a personal message by the hand of the prophet. They knew their God. They knew their history. They knew their scripture. They knew that the temple was not just some small thing, like some renovation you do on the side of your house. This was the central identifying factor of who they were as a people and how they worshipped spiritually God who had provided himself through blood sacrifice that he could be met with. And they were saying, really, they were saying, we don't really care, and we're tired, and it's not the right time to worship you, Lord. And he questions them. Now, uh, maybe there was a lot going on, right? But the Lord convicts them and he rebukes them with this question, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses when my house has no walls? My wife likes to watch uh, renovation shows. Maybe you do. Chip and Joanna Gaines, I think, is one. And they go in, right? And they, they do these marvelous things. And they put in these, they rip the kitchen out and they put in the lighting and this huge sink and the tiles and it's beautiful, Right? And God's saying, you guys are in your paneled houses. Like, this is not some, you know, low-end rental property. You're, you're just going to task building a name for yourself, and I don't have any walls to be worshipped in. And so he confronts them, uh, and he rebukes them with the words of the prophet and questions them. You see the result of how it's going for them in verse 6. You have sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you're never full. You have clothes, but you're not warm. And you have money, but you put it in a bag with holes. And the picture there is these people are not satisfied. And even though they have basic necessities, things are not going well. And God is saying that has to do with the fact that you have not come to me to worship. You have not built this temple where we can meet where you can know me and I can know you, and my presence can be displayed to you and to the nations. Well, the Lord calls in verse 7 then, as he does in his grace and mercy, by setting the prophet with that question, trying to get things to go in the right direction. And so in verse 7, he calls them to obedience, to repentance. This is what you should do now. Consider your ways, consider your life, consider what you're thinking and what you're actually doing. And in verse 8, go up to the hills and get the wood, so that we can continue to build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Worse than not being satisfied, in verse 9 and 10, we find out that actually God stands in judgment against them and is punishing them through things that they probably had to think about a little more here. In verse 10, God says, The heavens have kept back the dew, your crops are not growing. And uh, you're not going to do well economically. There's going to be a famine, and your work is going to turn to nothing. And so here we have uh, this personal God of covenant promise who is now uh, punishing his people because they are his people. And in the covenant with them, in the Old Testament, they were to worship him. They were to uh, bring glory to him. And now they stand, just like many of the prophets we've already seen, as an unfaithful people. Well, God does not call you and I this morning to go up to a hill and cut down some wood and build a temple. I don't know, that might be easier in some ways. We don't live in Switzerland, so it might be hard for them. But God is not calling us to do that today. A little later on, I want to talk about 
uh, Jesus being the cornerstone of what God is doing today in the church. But um, if you can think of what God is doing today that's most important for him to be met with, it's the church. It's his church. And so um, Jesus would die and be buried and raised, and he would then uh, gather the disciples who were scattered, and the Holy Spirit would come, and he said he would build his church. His last words were to go to the nations and to share his name with them. And so it is the building of the church, I think most here would agree, there are members here, that is central to what God wants to do in the world today. And so I ask you for a moment to consider your ways in how you prioritize church. These people, uh, in this day, their priorities were out of whack. They had time to panel houses, and they had no time to give to God. And in our lives, when it comes to the church, there are moments when our priorities uh, are, are out of whack. They're, they're not where they should be. Um, and in reflecting on this passage this summer, it was convicting to me about how I think about the church, specifically our church, uh, and what my priorities are in it. So just a few thoughts here. Consider your ways with the church. Do you speak kindly and lovingly of your church? You know, there are moments when you meet people and you have your own thoughts about being let down by your church because honestly, we're not perfect, right? And things happen and when priorities are not right, church life can get a lot harder. But do we think rightly about the church and does our family know we do? Does our family know that it's important to gather when the church gathers and it is hard when we can't because we miss it? And I know COVID has added a layer of complexity beyond anyone what could imagine when it comes to church life, but do we think lovingly about the church? Do we, secondly, pray for our church? If someone comes to mind, do you pray for them? Do you pray for Julian and our other elders? Praise be to God, we have another elder now. Do we pray, do we pray for one another? Do we give of our time and money sacrificially? It's an honest question we need to ask ourselves. These are things God has commanded us to do that Jesus has commanded us to do because Jesus loves his church and we should love his church as well. So uh, I know we're all at different places in life. I know some of us have problems. I don't know your problems. God does. Some of us are sensitive. If a pastor gets up and calls you to account and you're doing all these things, you can feel like I can't give any more. God knows that. But it's important for us to be reminded about priorities in our life before we end up saying we don't have time to go to church, we don't have time to help with whatever, we don't have time for prayer meeting. It, God calls us back. Well, if, if there's anywhere in your life where you need to come back to God on, in verses 12 to 15, there's a picture of what we're to do. God calls us to work for him, and the people here respond by obeying. You can see what obedience looks like in these verses. This is actually an astounding few verses because very few verses in the Old Testament do you read a prophet seeing before his very eyes people doing what they're supposed to do. It's absolutely amazing. It's like when you've been telling someone you love, you live with, to do that thing they've been doing for years, and all of a sudden you tell them and they joyfully just obey and you, they change and they, and they just don't do it again and you're shocked. This is a shocking moment. These people give us an example of what we're to do. They hear the word of the Lord through the prophet, and they obey by going to get, they organize themselves, and you see at the end of the chapter, they get working on this, and they get the wood. 
It's amazing. And it's a picture of what we are called then to do when we consider our priorities. We are to come back, ask the Lord for grace to obey. And we obey. We do that by fearing the Lord. Verse uh, 14, there's a few things here important to turning back to the Lord in remembrance. Uh, Mark Dever notes three things here. There's action. They're motivated. Um, there's the fear of the Lord. That's what's motivating them to do this. They consider who he is and how great he is and how they're in the wrong. And they repent. And you notice before they even do a word, we read in verse 13 that God comes along in the middle of them doing this and says, right, I am with you and reassures them, I am with you. And then in verse 14 following, the Lord stirs them up to work. All of them and all of God's people work. And so when we turn to God in repentance and we obey Uh, God in his grace through his spirit is involved, then he gives us what we need to do that. And any of us here today who are a believer would recognize and confess that it is God who initiates the work in our life and the change needed. And he does that and he gives us that now through his precious spirit and the responding of us to his word. Well, the word of the Lord confronts us about our ways And may God give us a soft heart this morning to actually consider our priorities in our church and to do our best. I was encouraged uh, a few years ago when two men from this church who barely knew me were asked to come help me move. I had, as you get older, you realize you need to hire people to move, but we moved thousands of miles across the border and it was a real mess and I got to Stouffville where we are and I had two brothers with me and they were dead tired and My youngest brother said, is anyone coming to help? And I said, well, I have another brother at this church in Toronto, and he said he'd get some people to help, but I don't really know them, but two of them are going to come. And my younger brother was all excited, and I think he was thinking, like, Andre the Giant and Samson was going to show up. (laughs) And who showed up was Mr. T and Mr. T. I won't embarrass them, but Mr. T and Mr. T go to this church still, and they don't look like Andre the Giant, but they worked hard, and they blessed us in love by serving us. Now, you... You might not be able to serve that way, and that's understandable. But this morning when you came, there were all these people who had spent time all week planning for us to do this, greeting us at the door and planning services and helping us sing and helping us pray and all of the amazing things that Femi brought up. It's the time of year when we're thinking about the future and we've got things going on at our church, and how can, how can you make that a priority in your life, Christian, today? Consider our ways and our priorities in our church. Well... We'll close with the second point in chapter 2. Chapter 2, uh, God calls us now to consider his promises. So he, the, the gaze here is turned fully from us now to God and to what he is going to do. Um, this is an astounding passage, and there's no way that uh, I can... There's just a lot going on here. And the old Sunday school answer of Jesus is right here. And I'm not going to... You're going to maybe have questions and... That's where our elders are for, right? But (laughs) this goes straight to Jesus, okay? So uh, what's going on here? Let's step back a bit, okay? God wants to make a meeting place, okay? And they're not doing it, and God's saying, come on. And they're in trouble, and then they turn, and then God immediately encourages them with the words of his promise to to go forward and build that temple, And so um, he comes with a question for them because he knows they're struggling with this in verse 3. So here is this question. You'll see a few more if you keep reading. As a matter of fact, for homework, read chapter 2, verses 19 and following. And a teacher told me 
The best homework is the one that the teacher doesn't have to mark. But beyond that, if you read God's word, it will bless you. And there's a blessing in verse 19 where God says, I'm going to bless the unholy. And even though you're unclean and everything you do is a mess, I'm going to bless you. And that is what the meeting place of God is all about. God is going to do something in grace that we do not deserve. And at the heart of that here is this promise to rebuild a new temple. And what's being described in chapter 2 is not just the temple that these people are called to build, but it far outstrips that and goes beyond to a new temple where we go to Jesus. And Jesus says, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll rebuild it. And it moves us to Jesus, who is the meeting place of God, that if you know him this morning, you know that. And so uh, in these verses then, uh, verse 3, there's a question for them. Who is left among you who saw the former glory? There were people old enough who seen Solomon's temple with all the gold and the dazzle and the glitter and the silver. And it was like a five-star worship experience. And they're standing in front of a one-star piece of jalopy. And they're going, <laughs> they're going what is this? Like I, and, and if you're like me, sometimes when you're in the church and you're trying to make church a priority and you're thinking about it, and you're like, this, is a, this isn't going the way it's supposed to go. And I'm discouraged. And I thought the church was supposed to march forward, and I thought people were, God has promised revival through history, and you can get like me and get frustrated with what God has called us to do. But here now, the word of the Lord, because God is going to tell these people, no, I'm actually going to build a new temple far, far greater than the one that Solomon built. And I'm going to build a house for you, he told King David that, right? And that house would ultimately be in Jesus when he comes to us in the New Testament and all that that means. So um, you'll see these promises in verse uh, 4 and following. Five times God declares it. He's declaring it here. What we're called to do is consider this declaration and believe it. Be strong, be strong. Work. Why? Fear not. Why? Well, now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And you notice he says in verse 5, fear not to his people because we fear a lot. And that has been revealed so much with what's going on in the world. And he comes with a word of comfort to fear not, I am with you. But not the spirit of God that had been with his people from when he called them out of Egypt and redeemed them. I'm going to be with you in a far greater way. And glory is going to fill this house. Glory. Glory. John 1, we read that Jesus, when he came, the word made flesh. John says, we beheld his glory. He came into his temple. He cleaned that temple. This is my father's house. And so I think at the heart of what's going on in these verses is that the greater glory is Jesus who comes, God in the flesh, to meet with us. Well, God declares how he's going to do that, and it means something for the people then, and it means something for us today, and it means something for the future. And so it means something for them. God would actually take riches from nations. I'm looking here now at verses 6 to 9. In verses 6 to 9, thus says the Lord, I'm going to shake the heavens, the earth, the sea. I'm going to do something amazing, and the whole world will be affected, and I will fill the house with glory. The gold is mine, the silver is mine. There's like some, something like $8 trillion worth of gold today in the world. And I don't know how much Bitcoin is worth, but all of that and the real estate in Toronto is the Lord's. It's the Lord's. I don't know about you, but I get messed up when I think what's really valuable. The world says one thing. The scriptures come back and they say another. And they say what's of value is the meeting place with God where he declares peace, verse 9. 
everlasting peace like we have never experienced that begins with Jesus. And so um, there's a physical promise that was given to the people then who built it, and it was fulfilled through Darius and uh, Herod, who rebuilt that temple. But it was for a stage place for where Jesus would come with his own hands and prepare a place for us by dying and rising again. So here, here notice a couple thoughts on Jesus from these verses. God says he's going to shake the nations, the heavens, and the earth. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 27 and Matthew chapter 28, uh, there is a shaking that goes on when Jesus died and when he rose again. So if you look there in Matthew um, 27, I think it's 51, and then in Matthew 28 too, we read these words. Um, As Jesus died, the place of the curtain of the temple tore in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and rocks were split, and the Lord was shaking. The shaking in this passage is a continual shaking through history at moments in time. And this is a huge one. The curtain came down because that meeting place, there was a curtain you couldn't see God face to face. But Jesus' death tore that curtain, and now we can have a relationship with God face to face. Then in 28, he not only died for our sins, he rose from the dead. In 28.2, we read that he was dead in that tomb, sealed, guarded. And there was, in verse 2, a great earthquake from the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and rolled back the stone, and sat on it. And the shaking of God is going on, isn't it? As people from all nations hear this message and come to what Jesus ultimately gives us is the peace that is promised here. This peace is eternal messianic peace. The happily ever after that is in Disney is for the Christian one day. But for now, in this passage, the peace is coming to us mainly through what Jesus did for us. He is the temple. We come to him to worship. And in worshiping him, we are part of the family of God. What did Jesus do when he died and rose again for us? And the answer is that he gave us peace. As the text says here, Jesus is our peace. This is a peace that uh, is greater than anything in the world you will ever experience. It's a peace where you, a sinner deserving wrath and judgment, Jesus dies for you in your place and that's removed and you're given a new heart and you call God Father and you live for him forever and ever and ever. And the peace starts when you come to him. So Christian, be encouraged. God has made peace. In the cross and in the resurrection, we have peace with God. And that is worth far more than gold or silver or Bitcoin or real estate or a relationship or intimacy or whatever you think you love. At the center of this is this peace that we have in Jesus where we are forgiven, cleansed, adopted. We are, uh, the spirit of God is in us and we are then sent to the nations. Well, our time has gone and I, I, I just want to close with one final thought. If you're not a Christian today, you don't have peace with God and your only hope is to come to Jesus. You have no other hope. Okay, we, there's nothing else. You have to hope in him or else the banishment for you will be eternal. But for you, Christian, you have come to an unshakable kingdom and in Jesus, you are safe. Well, final thought on meeting place then. The meeting place of God, there's a place yet to come. My my son is three. He wants to go to Disney. Um, some of you love Disney. I don't know what you love, boys and girls, that place you love. You just got to get there. It's going to be amazing. But you want to do that with someone you love, right? And we don't want to go to heaven if Jesus is not there because we love Jesus. 
But Jesus in his goodness and grace has prepared a meeting place for us one day. And we read these words in Revelation about that meeting place. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, Jesus. And the city has no need for sun or moon. The glory of God gives its light and the lamp is in the Lamb. And by light the nations will walk and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory. There's a place we have not seen that is better thing than you can ever imagine. And that awaits us and we are to wait in hope for Jesus to return. And in that hoping and waiting, we are to work by God's grace for him. So may God give us the grace to do that. Let's pray.